Hi, I'm Josh Shearer and I serve as the lead pastor here at Gawley Uniting Church. I wanted to personally thank you for joining us today. We exist as a church to see lives transformed with the good news of Jesus. Now, I hope this service inspires you. I hope it blesses you. I hope it builds your faith and I hope it gives you perspective that God is moving in your life. If there is anything that we can do to help you, don't be afraid to reach out on social media or email our office. Thanks for joining us again and let's get to the service. So we're in a series at the moment called On The Move. And quite simply, we're looking at Jesus' movements, or some of them, in His life and ministry. And, what, what, and the, the question that we're asking is, what can we learn from some of the movements of Jesus' ministry that can help us see the way that God wants to move in our lives today? Because Jesus ultimately, in His journey to Jerusalem, was moving towards His death and His resurrection and that we are actually called to a similar rhythm of life in a bunch of different ways. So that's what we're looking at over this series as we head towards Easter. We've looked, at the first week we looked at Jesus' temptation, and the way that we are all, if we're honest, susceptible to being tempted away from God's best for our life. And to remember what the rhythm was, it's deceptive ideas, playing into disordered desires, Affirmed in a broken world is the ways we fall off track from God's best for us. The invitation was to look at our journeys and see where it is God might want us to change some things. And then last week, Ken looked at Jesus' tenacity in His journey to Jerusalem. Despite the obstacles and the threats and the things that were happening around Him that, frankly, would have all been good enough reasons if, if that happened to me. I, I'll be tempted to give Jesus a pass on not wanting to go to Jerusalem either, but He presses on. Why? Out of love. Out of love for a world that did not accept Him. And today we're going to visit a really fun idea, one that I know you've been thrilled about talking about. Um, we're going to talk repentance today. How's that sound? You thrilled? I can tell that you're thrilled. Repentance. What an exciting thing to talk about. What is repentance? Well, we have to sort of understand it in a broader sense, as a culture, that repentance is a religious word. It's a word that is attached to, loosely, religion, faith, adherence to God of some type. It's not exclusively a Christian uh, word, particularly around religion. Most of the major religions have repentance as a part of their rhythm of of returning to God in some way. But most of us broadly understand that this idea of repentance is turning from one path, presumably, and most would agree, an immoral one of some type, whatever moral code you adhere to, repentance is turning away from the path of immoral actions towards a moral and right or just way of living. Now, that, that turn of repentance could be, could, could be whatever you would consider your moral groundings are in. And obviously, we have a framework within the Christian faith, but it's true of anything. And what I want to I flag before I go any further is this idea of repentance is a really unfamiliar concept, particularly for non-Christians, because you might have never even thought about it. 
If you're not a follower of Jesus here today, you're joining us online, whatever your story, you might have never actually thought about this concept of repentance in any sort of significant way. And so, to, to help us frame it a little bit, I'd love us to think of repentance, and this might be more accessible to you. Repentance is the act of making a radical change away from something, whatever this thing is, away from something that we have resolved is unacceptable in our life. So repentance is quite literally a 180-degree turn, a full turnaround, away from whatever this thing is that we have resolved is unacceptable about our journey. So let's not even take take the moral thing out of it, whatever you consider that would be. What is it that you would consider is unacceptable in your journey of health and faith or life in general? Repentance is, is walking away from that thing and choosing to do something else. So that could, be, that could be smoking, it could be alcohol, it could be substance abuse, it could be eating unhealthy, it could be a sedentary lifestyle, it could be your mobile phone and being addic- addicted to that, it could be Instagram, whatever this thing is that's unacceptable to you. Repentance is simply walking away from it. But the thing, and, but, and there's two parts to repentance when, when you think about it. There is the recognition or the identification of why whatever that is, smoking, substance abuse, addiction to pornography, whatever this thing is that you're stepping away from, the first part of repentance is identifying why this thing is unacceptable to you. It might be that it's bad for your health. It might be that it's bad for someone else's health. It might be that it's, it's um, ruining your marriage. It might be that it's your overspending that's got you in debt. Whatever this thing is, you have to resolve as to why it's unsatisfactory. But then you also need to accept that reality, that it is unsatisfactory. You're, so identified it's bad, you accept that it's bad, and you need to move towards a course of action that is right. If this is wrong, something must be right. If this is, the, this is the thing you don't want to do, then the right course of action is to not do it. Agreed? Is this making sense to everyone? So repentance, I think, is a far more acceptable or accessible concept than we might first realize. It's something that we're familiar with, but we become super uncomfortable with this idea of repentance when we begin to apply it to something like faith and God. Why? Because there's something about us, and you probably recognize this to be true, there's something about us that wants to be in control of our life. Anyone relate to that? I want to have what I want for breakfast. The freedom of of the, the, uh, the joy of being an adult is that you can have ice cream for breakfast if you wanted to. The wisdom of being an adult is not actually doing so. But we all, in some sense, it starts as a child. We want this freedom of control over our life. We don't want someone else telling us what to do all the time. And we like to think we grow out of that, but we actually don't. It's, an, it's a universal human element. So we want to be the master of our own life. We want to determine our own future, our own destiny, our own choices. I want to have whatever I want for breakfast. And if I decide it's going to be ice cream, it's going to be ice cream. I don't, by the way. I don't have ice. I brought it up twice, so you guys are starting to wonder. You guys, that... no, I don't have ice cream for breakfast. And so the reality of, of us as human beings is we don't like someone else telling us what to do. And we like it even less 
when we don't necessarily understand the why or the how behind those commands or those requests or that loss of control. We don't understand why we're encountering this with our girls. I'm starting to have to negotiate with children to help them understand the why behind what I'm asking them, when sometimes I just want them to do it. We ultimately want to help bring them to a place of understanding the why at some point, but sometimes you just want them to do what you say. Amen? Even as they grow into adults. I know some of you got, have got kids and grandkids and even great-grandkids. All the generations, sometimes you just want, they might be 16, you still want them to do as you say because you're their parent and you know best, right? Maybe. Or maybe it's open to negotiation, I don't know. But we don't understand the why, we, we struggle with it. But this idea of, of human sort of independence, I suppose, wanting to have our own control, is actually, it's, it's right through our culture. We, are, we, we get that. And there's a famous poem which helps to capture this for us, I think. It's a poem called Invictus. Does anyone know it? It's by William Henry William Ernest Henry, and it was written sort of at the turn of the last, uh, the two centuries ago. And the, the closing paragraph of it reads like this. It says, it matters not how straight the gate, how charged the punishments, the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Makes an appearance this poem makes an appearance in the movie called Invictus. If you ever have you've seen that, you would recognize it. What is, what is William Henry saying here? He's saying that I'm no longer concerned about the straight gate. And the imagery there is the, is the accepted divide between heaven and between hell, between the righteous and the unrighteous. I'm no longer worried about that. I'm not worried about the straight gate. I'm no longer worried about what the heavenly scrolls of the divine truth, so he's talking about the Scriptures, I'm no longer concerned about divine truth or what moral law might say over my life. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Friends, we live in a culture where this is the ethic. It's everywhere. And there's a logical clash that happens when, when this idea of repentance encounters this worldview of we are the captain of our own fate, the captain, master of our fate, captain of our soul. Because repentance, as it's connected to faith, generally suggests then, if we need to repent from some things and, and, and start doing other things, it generally suggests that there's a set of rules. And the thing about faith and religion is we are never the one that gets to set those rules, are we? There's always a God out there that's bigger than us, that knows more than us, and for some reason we have to do what we are told. That's what most religion understands. So there's a God out there who's making the rules, and we've either been following them or we haven't, which means we've either been doing something or not doing something that we should or shouldn't be doing. And we need to change because the person making the rules knows better than us. That's where repentance meets faith. But as we'll discover, as we look at this passage, repentance is the central issue of Scripture. And without risk of overstating this, I think it is the primary concept that Jesus actually wanted humanity to understand about it, the nature of our relationship between us and God, 
Repentance is the central thing Jesus came to teach through his life and through his ministry. Repentance is everything. And repentance, when I'm finished, you'll understand. Repentance, I hope you'll understand. Repentance is the central thing through which we are meant to filter our reality, the things that happen around us, good and bad. There's no action. Uh, Tim Keller quotes it this way. He says, there's no action that requires more human greatness, nor any activity that produces more human greatness than repentance. Let me say that again. There is no activity under heaven that requires more human greatness and requires more from us than repentance. And there is no activity under heaven that produces more fruit in us than repentance. And so, with the rest of our time, I want to explore this passage that Caitlin so beautifully read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 13. And Jesus' teaching in this passage, which on the surface doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But I think in this passage, Jesus explores three really important ideas around this idea of repentance. The fact that we all need it, the fact of how we should do it, and then when we should be doing it. So, what it is, how we should do it, and when we should be doing it. So, let's have a look at what Jesus has to say. Luke 13, now there were some present at that time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mixed with their sacrifices. Jesus answered, do you think that these Galileans, who by the way, what actually happened was Pilate, the Roman the Roman governor in that area of the time, executed a whole bunch of Galileans in the temple. And so their blood was mixing with the sacrifices of the animal sacrifice that happened at that time, which seems barbaric, but that's the way they did things back then. And so this is some Galileans that have been executed brutally in the temple of all places. So Jesus says, so that he was told about this by the people that were there. And Jesus says, do you think that these Galileans, the ones that were executed, were worse sinners than all the other Galileans, everyone else is still alive, because they suffered the way that they did. I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. All those 18 who died when the Tower of Siloam on the edge of Jerusalem, there's a big, big tower, it's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture as well, the tower fell down. When that tower in Siloam fell on those people, 18 of them, do you think they were more guilty than all the others that are still living in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you too will all perish. In this passage, it begins with two illustrations of tragedy, of suffering, and of loss. The Roman execution of some Galileans, so people that would have been Jesus' friends and possibly even extended family all traveled together to Jerusalem for a festival, and in response, possibly to some concerns about the number of people, Pilate decides to make an example of a bunch of them and executes them. It's a barbaric time of the world. Indeed, it still happens, if we're honest. In the West, not so much. But then there's other tragedy, 18 people crushed by a tower that fell, and in the face of these tragedies, Jesus asks us, in a sense, a rhetorical question, but it's not really because He answers it. But He asks the question that 
all of us ask when we're faced with things like this, don't we? We ask ourselves, why did this happen to them? Why did this happen to them? What did they do to deserve this? And whether we realize it or not, this is actually a human response. It's something that we all do in some way. Is when we see tragedy or we see things happen, and it seems a little bit more full-on than the average sort of thing. We, we, we wonder, we look across at their journey, we wonder, why them? What, what did they do to deserve that, God? Is it somehow that they were more sinful than everyone else? Is there somehow, what was the causality? What, how is it their fault that this happened to them? Not in an accusing way, necessarily, but in just a, God, what is going on? What did they do to deserve this? Did their suffering somehow point to their inadequacy before God in some way? Is their sin worse than anyone else? That's the question Jesus presents. And we do this whether we realize it or not. We look at our situation, we look at the situation of others, and we try and compare the two. We do it, if we're not consciously, then subconsciously, we compare our journey with someone else's journey, and we make a comparison, and if it's different in some way, we try and find fault, we try and understand why. And if it's negative, then we look at our journey, if, 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 what we've, if we're going through a tragedy or brokenness or suffering, we look at our journey and we say, why God? What have I done to deserve this? Anyone ever said that? Anyone ever thought it, prayed it? I have. For sure. What, what have I done to deserve this? God, did I not pray enough? Was my sermon bad on Sunday, which meant that I had to go through this? We'll do it in some way. Am I being punished for something, we wonder, of God? But then that's the negative side, but there's a positive side to it as well. When, when things are going great, when we win the lottery, anyone won the lottery lately? No, it's probably, let's go more relatable than that. When we get the right car park right in front of the shop, we say, God, thank you. What have I done right that I was able to get a car park right in front of the church? What have I done right that my health has gone right? What have I done right? How was my prayer effective? Did I pray it the right way? What is it between mine and God's relationship that has been positive? That has meant I've deserved this thing, this positive thing that has happened in our life. And when we think about those things, somehow, and it seems a jump, but it's not really when you think about it, somehow we infer that when good things happen, that we're superior in some way, spiritually, in our life. Because somehow, as a result of what we have done, things have gone better. And then we start thinking, yeah, I suppose I am a pretty good person. I guess I do deserve some good things to go my way at some point. But in response to that question, whether it's positive or negative, Jesus is so clear. Jesus says, no. 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 It's not, it doesn't, it's... It, no, full stop. The, the people that died in, in, in the Galileans that were executed and the people that were crushed by the tower, they weren't any worse than anyone else. They were no worse sinners than the rest of your lot, he basically says to them. There is no exceptional divine justice at work in these events. And Jesus follows it up with a seemingly unrelated comment. 
He says, but unless you repent, you too will perish. Unless you repent, you too will perish. And he says it twice. When I first read this, I'm thinking, Jesus, why did you change the subject? We were talking about suffering and why bad things happen to good people. We were going there and developing a really good understanding. So, but God, why did you, Jesus, why did you bring up this idea of repentance? Why did you change the subject? But Jesus' main point, if you look a little bit closer, is this. His main point is, no matter the circumstances of your life, whether positive or whether negative, the correct response is repentance. Notice that Jesus highlights it, and, and so He uses the illustration of those that had suffered or died, and those that were still alive that were spared of. Because I'm sure there were some Galileans standing in that court that day, in the, in the temple court that weren't executed. How come they got to live? So in Jesus' response to them, in that question of why did this happen to them, He said, well, positively, whether you survived the, the, the Roman sword, or negatively, whether you, your life was lost by the Roman sword, the response that we must have, regardless, is repentance. Repentance is that we're not called to look over at anyone else and try and figure out why they were bad enough or whatever. When we see those or experience those situations of brokenness and suffering, Jesus says the right response is still repentance. But also the right response we go on to discover in a positive situation is repentance as well. In Romans, uh, the Apostle Paul writes it this way, in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, he says, Do you show contempt for the riches of His, that is God's? Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience? Not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. So, Scriptures teach us that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance as well. So, Paul is essentially saying... When good things happen, when a tower doesn't fall on you, unless we let that lead us to repentance, we are treating God's kindness with contempt. God things should lead us, sorry, good, God things, good things should lead us to repentance as much as bad things. And instead of looking around, the only way we're supposed to process the situations of our life, this is Jesus' central teaching. Repentance, the only way we are supposed to process our journey of faith and our journey through life is through the lens of repentance. We must recognize and remind ourselves of what we really are. We are sinners saved by grace. That's what this is all about. Sinners saved by grace. And as we look back through Jesus' ministry so far... We see it over and over and over again. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, Mark chapter 1, He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. When Jesus equips others to enact His ministry and proclaim the gospel to others in, in the Galilean Judean countryside, He commissions His followers to do what? To preach the good news. I send you out to preach that everyone should repent, was what Jesus asked everyone to teach. And the Apostle Peter, in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension, 
the Holy Spirit comes upon the people. Peter preaches a cracking message, better than I'll ever preach, I'm sure. And the message was basically, remember that Jesus guy? God sent him, you killed him, say you're sorry. And the question that they, they ask of Peter in that moment is, what do we do? When confronted with this reality that they killed Jesus and it was their fault and he was God's son, what do we do? And what's Peter's response? Repent and be baptized. Are you, are you getting the consistent message? Repentance is the gate to everything. There is nothing that God will offer that we can access without repentance. Repentance is a universal and a continual need, but the tension becomes that for most people, this doesn't make much sense. Why? Because for most of us, we understand repentance as some sense of self-loathing for the things that we've done and turning away from the things that we are guilty about or that we feel shameful for. So the idea that we need to beat ourselves up, not just in the negative stuff, which we can kind of understand, but in the positive stuff, the idea that we need to repent in both of those places doesn't make a lot of sense. It seems crazy. But that's because we don't actually understand fully Jesus' vision of repentance as it's written in the New Testament. We understand this broad idea of turning away from something, but Jesus has a, a very specific picture in mind when it comes to repentance between us and God as opposed to repentance away from cigarettes or away from pornography or away from chocolate or whatever it is that this thing is, remember? Repentance is turning away. Jesus says, no, well, repentance between us and God is, is, is more. Jesus tells us what repentance is. And the conviction sits in two realities hold, held together. Now, don't write me off until I'm finished with both, okay? Sound good? Excellent. The first one, is true repentance begins with the realization that you and I deserve to have a tower fall on us. That's where repentance begins. And you go, Josh, that's a bit harsh. Jesus says in response to those that he was talking to on the day, he says, to those of you gathered here, you don't, those people that died from the tower, they don't deserve that any more or less then you do, he says to the crowd gathered around him. And this, in the philosophical question of why bad things happen to good people, the underlying assumption that is never addressed in any philosophical argument I've ever discovered so far, of why bad things happen to good people, is the underlying assumption of that is that some people do deserve bad things, but for most of us, we more or less, God owes us a good life. There's the pedophiles out there, and there's the people that, you know, the, the terrorists, and, and there's all the things, the murderers, all the people that we would consider in our framework of morality as unforgivable. They absolutely deserve to have a towel fall on them. But for the, most of us, we're going to try and live a pretty good life. So, surely, for us, God owes us that much, doesn't He? But Jesus, notice He doesn't make that assumption. The philosophical problem of suffering that no one wants to tackle is why do we expect that we are entitled to a good life? There's no point getting, up, getting upset about suffering in the world unless we can adequately prove, and this, you think about it for long enough, and it's absolutely true, we can't get upset about suffering in the world until we can adequately prove that God owes us something different. 
Jesus' assumption, on the other hand, is that we are all sinners, deserving of judgment before God. And I get it, that's a big pill to swallow. But Jesus paints everyone the same, those that were hit by the tower and those that won't, that weren't. And the thing that we need to think about here is, because you might not buy this idea of us being broken and all being broken and sinful and things like that, and I get that. If, if, if you're not a follower of Jesus, if, if you don't ascribe to this whole faith thing, this feels pretty confronting. But the thing we need to think about here is that sin is the best possible explanation we have for the human condition. Whether you're a follower of Jesus or whether you're not, doesn't matter. We've got to think about this. Sin is the best, most plausible explanation for what's going on in our world. Every political and economic system that we ever elevate, whether it's socialism or whether it's capitalism or something in between, why is it that every single economic system that we ever elevate fails? Why is it that every governmental system fails. We end up dissatisfied. People take advantage. When we elevate the rich, they take advantage and abuse the poor. When we elevate the poor, they take advantage and get lazy. That's what we see every single time. What is that? It's sin. That's what it is. I'm quite happy for you to reject the doctrine of sin I'm getting real with you, I don't often do this, like this, but I'm quite happy for you to reject the doctrine of sin if you can put something else in its place that is a better explanation for why we as humanity keep screwing up the world and taking advantage of each other. Have you got a better option? In my honest opinion, there isn't one. Sin is the problem. And what is it? Sin is the selfishness embedded in our nature. Sin is the, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul, and no one can tell me what to do. And Jesus called it. He called it. If there is a creator God, and if we owe Him everything, He deserves first place in our heart. And we put all sorts of things in its place in God's place, including ourselves. We dismiss Him, and we decide to do our own thing so often. But then, after treating God like that, we decide that somehow He owes us a good life. See, it doesn't make any sense. It's very quiet in here today. But Jesus says says that we all deserve to have towers fall on us, really, before God. We all do. The fact that they don't is the wonder. Considering what we owe Him, considering how we treat one another, and considering how we treat God, the first reality we need to grasp around repentance is that God doesn't owe us a good life. And I'm sorry if that offends you, but that's the reality that Jesus presents, and He knows more about this stuff than we do. This is the first one, that we don't deserve a good life. But the second reality that needs to go with it and needs to be held with it is this. That God is committed to saving us from what we deserve. So the first one is that we do not deserve a good life. But God, secondly, God is committed to saving us from what we deserve. 
because the teaching continues. In Luke chapter 6, Jesus presents the truth, repent or you're going to die too. Then he, he says a parable, he says that a man had a fig tree growing in his vineyard and he went to look for fruit on it, but he didn't find any. So he said to the man who took care of the vineyard, for three years now I've been coming to look for fruit on this fig tree and haven't found any. Cut it down. Why should it use up the soil? It's not bearing any fruit. But sir, the groundskeeper replies, the gardener, leave it, please leave it alone for just one more year and I'll dig around it and I'll fertilize it. And if it bears fruit next year, fine. But if not, Cut it down. Cut it down. So to illustrate the other side of this reality, Jesus tells this parable. And in the parable of the owner owner of the fig tree wants to come and cut it down because it's not bearing any fruit. And the gardener begs the owner to just chill out for another year and allow the gardener to, to nurture the tree to fertilize the tree, to water the tree, to dig around it, to do all the things it needs to do to help it to bear fruit. And in the parable, what is the tree? Who is the tree? The tree is us. And what is the fruit? The fruit is love for God and repentance. And who is the caretaker? The caretaker is Jesus. Jesus says, I know they deserve to be cut down. I know it. But let me save them. Let me save them from what they deserve. Let me dig around them. Let me fertilize them. Let me do everything I know how to do to save them from what they deserve. Jesus is the caretaker. And He did the work. He did the work all the way to the cross. He gave His life, a perfect life. Unlike the rest of us, a sinless life. And He gave that life on our behalf. He paid the debt of sin which leads to death, Scripture teaches, as Jesus declared it. We all deserve to perish, but He took the weight and the debt of that sin upon Himself when He died on that cross, because He was perfect And He took it for all of us. And what we're called to do in response to that gift is we're called to repent. Repent and believe that Jesus was who He says He was. And that He did what He said He would do for us. Do you see the two things in tension? If only we see ourselves as broken and not worthy... Or if, if we only see ourselves as broken and unworthy and falling short of God's standard all the time, that's not repentance, that's despondency and, and self-pity and shame, self-loathing. But if we only see ourselves as deserving of God's goodness all the time and we don't see ourselves as the reality, we don't see reality for the way it is that we don't deserve anything from God. And if we only see the negativity without the goodness... It leaves us broken. If we only see the goodness without the reality, then it leaves us self-righteous and earning our way to heaven. And God said, that won't get you there. 
And the third thing that Jesus offers to us is how do we know that we have repented? How do we know? If we're meant to do it all the time, how do we know? We know that we've repented when we recognize that we are a sinner and that we are dearly loved and cherished, both in tension. And friends, that is how, as Jesus teaches us, we are called to process everything in our life, whether it's good or whether it's bad. We're called to repent and place God at the center, to step away from what we think is central and place God at the center. What does this look like? It says, when we see something bad happen, or it happens to us, instead of trying to find blame, we go, God, that's... That's bad. But we deserve so much worse. Thank you, God. And we're reminded of our place before Him. But when something good happens, we say, God, thank you for that. I don't deserve this, but I'm grateful for the blessing. And we allow that goodness to reorient ourselves back to God again. You see how it works in both directions? Good and bad. John Newton puts it this way, the reality of repentance. He says that the truth of the gospel, when we get it, the truth of the gospel makes the worst times we encounter bearable and the best times we encounter leavable. We can put them down because we know that God gave them to us, but they were not ours to deserve. And so as Jesus finishes his parable, he says, if it bears fruit next year, fine, all is good. But if it doesn't, cut it down. What does that tell us as I I finish? It tells us a very simple reality. That now is the time to bear fruit. Now is the time to explore and live out this fruit of repentance, positive and negative in our life. That we can't wait till tomorrow. Because Jesus says, if it bears fruit, fine, leave it alone. But if it doesn't bear fruit, cut it down. And the reality is that we've done nothing to deserve the goodness of God, but instead we receive it because of the goodness of God. And so the invitation is there for you. If you're a follower of Jesus, the invitation is to allow the situations of our life to reorient us back to God, good or bad. We don't deserve either. But if you're not a follower of Jesus, the invitation from Jesus is clear. Now is the time to see where you really sit before God, but then to see what God has done for you to make a way to Him. So would you pray with me, church? Loving God, I thank you for this gift of love and grace. But Lord, we acknowledge the reality that we are broken, that we are sinful and that we need saving because we cannot save ourselves. And Lord, we know and recognize that. Lord, so Lord, would you help us to see where we have been claiming the need for a good life without ever treating you with respect, without ever turning back to you, without ever letting that focus us 
our heart on you. And so, Lord, would you, like you proclaimed, which was central to everything you talked about, would you allow your ministry and the truth of a situation before you and the gift of your grace lead us both to right standing with you through faith and trust that you know the best for us, that you have the best for us, and that you promise the best for us when we turn to you. So, loving God, we place our life, our heart, and our soul in your hands. Give us the wisdom to see it and repent today. In your name we pray. Amen.